Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Gender Studies. I'm Julie Fetty, host of the channel, and today we'll be talking with Melissa DeBacchus about her new book called A Sisterhood of Sculptors, American Artists in 19th Century Rome. This book is published by the Pennsylvania State University Press in 2014. Melissa DeBacchus, welcome to the show. Thank you, Julie. Thank you for inviting me. Such a pleasure. Let me just give a brief biography of you. You are a professor and chair of the Art History Department at Kenyon College in Ohio. Melissa DeVacus is also a member of the American Studies faculty there at Kenyon. She received her PhD from Boston University, and her research specializes in American and modern European art history. Melissa DeVacus's first book was called Visualizing Labor in American Sculpture, Monuments, Manliness, and the Work Ethic. And this came out with Cambridge University Press in 1999 and in paperback in 2011. And today we will be talking about the second book, A Sisterhood of Sculptures. Sculptures. So welcome again, Melissa. Thank you. Can you tell us, Melissa, just a little bit about yourself and perhaps how you came to be interested in the topic of this book? Sure. Um... Well, my specialty really in terms of research is American art history, and uh, I do teach Europe, modern European and American here at Kenyon, but my research for the most part is uh, in American. And um, my first book, uh, as you mentioned, Visualizing Labor in American Sculpture, was, as you can imagine, uh, very dominated by men and male imagery and it was very interesting to kind of think about labor and the way labor is visualized and particularly visualized through the male body Um, but there were only a few instances really just one that I can think of um, you know where I uh, in one of the chapters that I could really talk about women's experiences and representations of or, or the, the types of choices that women sculptors would make when they were dealing with these themes. So um, it's interesting when the book was finished. I mean, I enjoyed writing the book and thinking about it. Um, I just I made this decision that I just wanted to do feminist art history. I just had to do feminist art history at this point, and I needed to uh, return to because I had done some feminist art history before, of course, and this, and the, uh, the book on um, labor sculpture is, as you know, um, uh, gen- the kind of, uh, you know, gender plays a key role in that, in that book, but really the construction of masculinity was something that I was particularly interested in dealing with. Um, but I felt like I just needed to get back to women's history and, what occurred to me was a seminar that I had taken years and years and years ago when I was a graduate student at Boston University uh, at um, the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. And it was a seminar on American sculpture. And, you know, it was held at the museum. It was wonderful. And, you know, we studied the history of American sculpture and, you know, looked at all the different objects and we spent one or two weeks on these women, you know, that I ended up writing my book on. And I found them just such an interesting group. Uh, you know, how was it that this group of, I write about eight or nine women, you know, how was it that this group of women in the mid-19th century, you know, would find their way to Rome and would end up being really, many of them, like Harriet Hosmer, very, very famous sculptors at the time. And it just seemed um, just uh, a a question that I just stayed with me and sort of 
haunted me, I suppose. And so that's when I turned. As soon as the as soon as the book on labor, you know, was done, you know, even before it was published, you know, when it was went to the, went to Cambridge, I just immediately turned my attention to these women and went to Rome. And I have never looked back <laughs> since then. You know, it just grabbed my attention. Rome grabbed my attention, and this topic grabbed my attention. And uh, it was, certainly was a labor of love. It took a long time to write, and I thought, oh, uh, four chapters. You know, I'll write it in you know a couple of years, and I'll put it out. Well, no, you know, seven chapters later, intro and conclusion. Uh, and many years later, the book finally came out, and there were so many more questions that needed to be answered, you know, that I didn't really even know about until I started thinking about the book. And chapters kept breaking in half, you know, I'd start a chapter, and then I realized, well, no, this is really two chapters, and then I started another chapter, no, this is really two chapters. So, um, it covers, a, it's a very broad-ranging book, it covers a lot of material, uh, in a relatively short period of time, because I'm really only dealing with 1850 to 1876, this sort of moment at mid-19th century. However, um, there just are a lot of questions because, uh, and a lot of issues that have never been addressed, which I suppose is not that unusual in women, you know, women's history and feminist art history. Because uh, within art history, this group of women uh, were called the White Marmorian Flock, which is a term that Henry James gave them in 1903, uh, which, um, you know, in the introduction, you know, I immediately address, and I never use, use that term again. But um, even though the women were addressed in American art history or in art history in general, it was often done with a little patronizing manner and... You know, the women weren't taken that seriously. You know, they're considered more amateurs. Uh, rather than when you get into the primary research, you realize that they were uh, very, very successful and um, actually very powerful players, you know, in the international sculpture world at the time. But you would never know that, you know, from reading the histories. So a lot had to be uncovered and a lot had to be retold. You know, I felt like I had to retell stories um, and retell them from the perspective, from what I try to do is in this feminist study is to imagine the story from the perspective of the woman artist. Um, you know, their community in Rome, what they were doing, why they chose to do certain sculptures, why they were successful, why they weren't successful at times. Um, and... Uh, really try to imagine what life might have been like, you know, in 1850 or 1860, which are key key dates, as you can, as we know, for you know, in American history, of course, with the Civil War, and key dates in Italian history because of the Italian Risorgimento and the unifying of the nation in 1860, and then Rome becoming the capital of this new sovereign state in 1870. So it was very momentous. Uh, time when these women happened to be working in Rome. And also, of course, they were accompanied by a whole cadre of male sculptors as well. Um, but it was what interested me most was this group of women, professional women sculptors, the first group really of professional women artists, one could even argue, in American art history. And here they are in Rome. You know? <laughs> um, and so I just needed to wanted and needed to explore that idea. Indeed. So you talk about this remarkable American expatriate community of women artists, um, some of whom are very well known, Harriet Hosmer, Edmonia Lewis, mm-hmm. Anne Whitney, Vinnie Reem, mm-hmm. and others not so much. You, you right. give us wonderful vignettes about Emma Stebbins, Margaret mm-hmm. Foley, Sarah Fisher Ames, and Louisa Lander. Mm-hmm. And indeed, it's a very convincing argument about how these were the first women artists to achieve status and recognition, both in the American art world as well as in the artistic circles in Rome. And just who knew? Who knew that so many American women sculptors were working, earning commissions, and finding so much recognition all in Rome in the 1850s, 60s, and early 70s? So, mm-hmm. so why Rome? Can you perhaps start with that, Melissa? Yeah, why Rome? I mean, that was one of the questions I had. Um, well, we knew that 
these women couldn't work in the United States. They couldn't. Most of them were from Boston, not all, but most of them were from Boston or New England. Uh, they really couldn't work in the United States for a variety of reasons. Most American sculptors were working in Rome to begin with because that was where the art was. That was where skilled carvers, marble carvers were, where they could actually learn uh, the craft of marble carving. It was not taught in the United States at that time to men or women. Uh, that's where the beautiful Saravates and Carrara marble is. You know, the, there were not marble quarries yet in uh, this country. So if you were a sculptor and uh, at that time, marble, if you were a sculptor, you were working in marble, uh, you really needed, you know, to go to Rome. Um, and then the women, I think, doubly so, because uh, the art world itself, uh, and maybe the sculpture world even more, but not necessarily so, but the art world was a very masculine sphere. It was very difficult for women uh, in the antebellum period to uh, enter the public sphere uh, in any way, really. And as an artist, they weren't taken seriously. It's true in Europe. This is true in America. Um, and so we know really French women were having problems in Paris. I mean, there was really no other place in Europe that they could go, London, uh, that they could go either. And so as it turned out, Rome became a kind of mecca for women artists. And I study in particular, you know, the American women and who spent a lot of time also with British women artists who were in Rome. So it really did have a, a kind of interesting, there was an interesting lure um, for women there. And um, so why, you know, why did they go? We know why they couldn't go other places, but why did they go to Rome and why were they successful in Rome? And that's really sort of a key question. I mean, part of it is uh, a romantic idea I talk a lot about uh, Germaine Dustel's novel Corinne or Rome that was written at the beginning of the 19th century, which became an absolute you know, classic book uh, among upper class and middle class um, women. They read Corinne and they saw her as this beautiful, talented poet, you know, who lived in Rome and, you know, had this, I don't know if glamorous is the right word, but, you know, was very famous for her poetry and uh, women wanted to be like Corinne, of course, in a good romantic fashion, of course, you know, she falls in love with with a British lover and then gets abandoned by that lover. And then, you know, of course has to die in the end. I mean, so there's, a, there are certain conventions that, that are part of the book, but nonetheless, Madame de Stel or Germaine Necker really, uh, you know, imbued Corinne with an amazing amount of sort of grace and charm and talent that American women and British women, um, but particularly American women, uh, saw as a model. And so to the point where, you know, people like Margaret Fuller or certain American writers or certain American artists like Vinnie Ream were called American Corinne's. I mean, it really became part of the vernacular when there was a talented kind of brilliant woman, they were called Corinne's. You know. So part of the lure to Italy is mythic, you know, it's part of the novel, um, and, you know, it's a dream world, and women sort of flock there. Um, but then the politics of the situation uh, made it a realer. I mean, made it that that dream was actually able to be carried out in Rome. And the politics are very complicated uh, in terms of the relationship between American 
Americans and Italians at the time and travel by Americans to Italy. But on the one hand, as I was saying before, Italy itself was in a kind of turbulent moment. It was uh, fighting um, uh, imperial powers like Austria, for instance, uh, that o- literally owned uh, large parts of Italy. Um, so it was kind of um, uh, it was kind of a European imperialism. It was kind of um, uh, an imperialism coming from within Europe. So Italy w- was not ru- self-ruled, but was ruled by these external forces. And um, so beginning in 1848, with the big revolutions really all over Europe, uh, Italy you know, began sort of in earnest uh, this fight to liberate itself from these imperial forces. And that did happen by 1860, 1861, you know, when Italy becomes a sovereign nation state. So Americans in general, and this particular group of women who were over there, were very sympathetic to this politics and Americans in general um, saw in Italy, you know, a kind of mirror of their own revolution and their own attempt uh, and successful attempt to overthrow uh, imperial powers. And so there was this Republican sympathy that was generated between the United States and Italy and the artists and the writers were very um, involved with that. And in fact, um, you know, the Italians did look to the United States as a model, you know, as a, as a model republic. You know, what did the United States do? And, you know, could they do similar, similar things to the point where uh, Garibaldi, who's a very famous resurgimento leader, uh, he was a general and um, fought some very, very important battles and became a mythic hero. And, you know, we would call Garibaldi is like the George Washington, literally, of Italy, in the way we think of the mythic character of George Washington, too. Um, but Garibaldi was so well known in the United States by 1860, you know, that Abraham Lincoln you know, sent him a telegram and asked him to come fight for the Northern cause, you know, when the Civil War broke out. Um, And he actually, Garibaldi actually considered it, but decided against it because he still had work to do in Italy. But I mean, there was that kind of sharing of ideologies and sympathies across the Atlantic. And the artists were very much involved, uh, you know, Uh, Many of the artists were very sympathetic in the same way. And the women in particular, because the women who tended to go to Rome in the 50s and 60s were reformers. You know, they were the daughters of of 1848. You know, they were the daughters of Elizabeth Katie Stanton. They sort of grew up in an environment that was more reformist, you know, was part of that first wave of feminism. Many of them were abolitionists, um, so they had a certain perspective that they brought with them to Rome. Um, and it inform- and then I argue in the book that it informed some, not all, of their artistic production when they were when they were there. You know, and so I make an argument that um, some of the work that we think of only within an American context because it's here now, the sculpture that's produced is here now in the United States. When it was produced in Rome at a certain moment, you know, during the Resurgimento also, you know, had very powerful allusions to Italian politics and to kind of Republican sympathies that were aligned with Italian politics. And then Rome becomes at that moment, Rome in fact is, um, ruled by the papacy, what's called the Papal States, which is the whole center of uh, Italy, is owned literally by the papacy. And it's not until 1870 that that war is won and that Rome and the Papal States then become part of the new nation state um, of, of Italy. So Americans are 
in Rome, you know, at a very propitious moment, right? And then, of course, our war, you know, and of course the devastation that's going on in the United States. Um, and so there's a, a lot of sort of caring and sympathetic feelings back and forth between the two struggles that are that are going on. So that said, I mean, this kind of liberatory quality of this revolutionary moment in Italy, I think, is one thing that fuels women, you know, and their sort of successes over there. But the second half of the equation is a little bit more complicated um, in that uh, I have a whole chapter sort of devoted to the colonial mentality that American women bring with them you know, when they go to Italy, because the Mediterranean and Southern Europe had, was all, had always been considered in, in modern days, you know, particularly since the Enlightenment, inferior to Northern Europe and inferior to the United States, you know, where there was progress and modernity and forward-looking, you know, uh, vision. And what, what people loved about Italy was its backwardness you know, was its antiquity, was its exactly lack of modernity. Um, and that's why people went and and loved it. And so along with that, those attitudes come, I would argue, both colonial and racist attitudes, uh, which I think are still in place, frankly, uh, in Europe. Sometimes we see them in Europe, between Northern Europe and Southern Europe. And... Um, so the relationship between Italians and Americans were quite was quite complicated. Um, white Anglo-Saxons of, except I mean, and I have to say, not all the women in Rome were white Anglo-Saxons. In fact, there was one very prominent African American woman, but um, by and large, uh, the women were from white Anglo-Saxon backgrounds, and came to Italy with a ra- racist with a racist and racial privilege uh, that was sort of embedded in their existence. I mean, they certainly, as, as much as they were abolitionists and progressive thinkers at home, they still were born into a discourse, right, of race around, you know, slavery and certainly the, the Native American question. So I argue that it's almost impossible not to bring uh, that type of racist thinking with them. And so there was a sense of privilege that I think they inherited, you know, as as white Anglo-Saxon expatriates. And they had certain freedoms in Rome that they would not have anywhere else, quite frankly. You know, they wouldn't have them in Paris. They wouldn't have them in London. And they wouldn't have them in New York. You know, it was like uh, they had a colonial privilege to the point where one of the first things that a number of the women do when they get to Rome is they work with the male nude, which was absolutely forbidden, absolutely forbidden in the United States and in Paris and in London, you know, that the female gays, right, you know, would have access to the male body. But if you think, in, you know, if you locate, you know, or if you kind of position these women within a more colonial context, you know, uh, then class, uh, Trump, class and race trump gender, you know, completely. And so they just had access to male bodies that they never had anywhere else. Um, which was great because as a sculptor, you absolutely need, that's one of the most important things you need. You need to be able to draw from the live nude. You need to be able to kind of understand the, the male and female body. Obviously, they'd have more access to a female body. But so Rome offered, you know, powerful things to these women, but at what cost? You know? And, you know, it's hard to know if, you know, I... You know, I, I don't want to be an apologist for the women, but um, I think it was probably more unconscious or unwitting than witting, you know. But, um, uh, you know, Rome served them well on a number of different levels. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us, Melissa DeBacchus, about Harriet Hosmer? I was really taken with 
the sketches of her career that that's are sprinkled throughout the book. And and by the way, your book is is so generously furnished with images of the artists and their works in such a beautiful large hardcover format. But could you could you just tell us about Harriet Hosmer and perhaps her relationship with the male nude? Yeah. Um Harriet Hosmer is probably the most famous of this group of women and may even be the most talented. I mean, she is an amazingly talented sculptor, Um, you know, it's it's certainly rivaled the men. And she had to walk a very, very fine line um, between, um, you know, having a certain, you know, comradeship with her male colleagues, sculptors, and um, challenging them. And it was difficult. And each one of the women in Rome had to do this. And each one of them found kind of unique ways to kind of thread that needle, to kind of walk that fine line some of them more successfully than others. Um, Harriet Hosmer was successful, um, and she um, she was able to um, work with, quite frankly, both the male and female nudes, mm-hmm. and she did so both the female nude was in some ways more controversial than the male nude, Mm. which uh, sounds a little counterintuitive, but that's also true with other female, uh, other of the women sculptors that were there when they took the female nude as a subject that became in some ways even more controversial and um, it just seems to me that the only argument that I could really find or what made most sense to me is that the female nude, more than almost any other trope in art history, uh, sort of defines the high art model, defines exactly what high art is. If you think of Titian's Venus of Urbino or the beautiful... Greek nudes, uh, you know, classical Greek nudes, female nudes that we know of, um, but they've all—they were always the the preserve of the male artist. I mean that they had complete control over the female nude and the female body, and they always did, and they always planned on having that. And when they saw women, sort of, you know, almost like interlopers into this powerful area of high art, the female nude, the ideal female nude, uh, it really caused enormous controversy. And that women, I have to say, uh, and Harriet Hosmer only did one female nude. She got a lot of criticism for it. It's a beautiful, beautiful nude. But, um, you know, she only did it once. And then a little bit later in her career, she turned to the male nude. And the male nude uh, sort of relates to what we were talking about before in my my thinking that it again allowed women sculptors, Anne Whitney, Emma Stebbins, Harriet Hosmer, uh, because of their white... Anglo-Saxon female privilege in Rome allowed them access to the male body uh, in a way that would not have been possible elsewhere. And um, she does this rather lovely uh, uh, image that is very much inspired, well, she says it is inspired by Nathaniel Hawthorne's Marble Fawn. Nathaniel Hawthorne is in Rome at the exact same time. He's in Rome in 1859 and 1860, and um, he's very close with the women and men sculptors. And in fact, if you've read 
the Marble Fawn. Uh, it is a very interesting story about American sculptors, women and men sculptors, and paint and painters uh, in Rome at that time. And uh, he uses the trope of the Marble Fawn, which is an antique sculpture that he sees in the Capitoline Museum, which he goes back to over and over again when you read his um, journals. And, you know, he is sort of obsessed with the beauty of this male figure, and he talks about it a lot, and it becomes uh, an important metaphor, you know, in his uh, in his uh, novel. And again, the way he talks about the male nude and the marble fawn, for example, is that this is a figure that is half man, sort of half beast, you know, half human, but half kind of you know, that's what a fawn is, kind of half, you know, animal-like, which is, I think, a way in which racist thinking about primitive Italians, you know, uh, uh, there's there's a relationship between the, this, this kind of visualization of the kind of beautiful yet, yet also bestial male body and the way Americans or Northern Europeans think about Italians in general and Italian men. But anyway, but so Hosmer is able to sort of look and have access to the male body, you know, because of this ideology. And she creates a very beautiful, very charming fawn. Um, who is not, uh, and which causes, interestingly enough, no controversy. There's no controversy when these women take up the male nude in Italy. I mean, that's, I just was shocked by that. But, you know, they were uh, supported, and these sculptures were critically very well received, unlike the female nudes, you know, so again, the controversy was more of the male body, but I think that's because these sculptures fall into a certain deeply held racial ideology, uh, you know, of the mid-19th century, but she sort of makes this sculpture very palatable to Americans who are rather prudish about the nude anyway, you know, the male or female nude. And she tends to carve her her sculpture is of a young boy, you know, of a not really mature male body, um, almost a feminized body. So its um, its sexuality is very understated. It's certainly there. It's a very sensuous sculpture, but it's not very blatant. So she's a, she's able to kind of work with the male nude. She sort of knows how Harvey Hosmer was brilliant in that she really knew how to market her sculpture, and she knew that she wanted to market her fawn, you know, after the marble fawn, after Nathaniel Hawthorne, and you know she knew just how to do it. She knew how to make an unthreatening, kind of innocent uh, male nude which then became extremely fashionable. And um, um, when it was exhibited in London, when it was exhibited in the United States, you know, very well received. By mm. Tell us about her female nude. What is it called and what were the controversies surrounding it? Her female nude was called Enoni. And uh, it's a mythological figure. And uh, she does it when she's quite young, it's one of the first sculptures she does, like 1856, and she gets to Rome in 1852. Um, So it was quite daring. And it was clear that, you know, in her sculpture, um, she worked from the live model. You know, this was, it was an idealized nude. However, there was a sensuality to it. And also a sort of a familiarity with the female body, which just by virtue of her own, you know, uh, femininity makes that possible, that it, it was a very, she created a very kind of beautiful uh, sculpture. Now, this sculpture, Inoni has, um, has just been rejected by her lover, um, Theseus, who is now 
has now taken up with Helen of Troy. So she is actually devastated, and it's based on a a poem that she knows um, called Inoni. And so the moment she chooses to depict is when uh, Inoni is sort of, she sort of drops to her knees and, you know, her head is sort of down and her arms are sort of crossed across her body. And she has a drapery around the lower part of her body, but her breasts are, revealed but her arms are sort of covering that but she's sort of um the pose is like Enonia sort of falling into herself she's sort of you know creating this very sort of private moment and so when she does create the nude figure it's not a nude that is completely on display and completely available to the male or female gaze in fact it's a figure who is curling up into herself and does not look out and is sort of protecting herself and, you know, sort of quietly mourning, you know, this loss of her, of her lover. Um, And so um, there's a very different relationship that Hosmer develops with the female nude, um, which is not, about display and about sort of the power of the gaze uh, over the nude, you know, it's like you're intruding on a moment where she doesn't even, you know, and he doesn't even know you're there and doesn't really want you to be there. You know, it's just this very sort of private moment of uh, agony. Um, Well, the, her colleagues in Rome were just so upset by this, you know, because they walked into her studio and uh, they saw drawings from the live nude. They saw probably sketches, uh, maybe uh, clay sketches from a female, you know, you know, from a live model, I should say. And they were appalled that this would be on public display. You know? And um, it even and women felt the same way about Elizabeth Barrett Browning, who's a very close friend of Harriet Hosmer's and uh, a very progressive thinker in certain ways. And as most people know, spent most of her life in Florence and Hosmer knew her in Florence and she'd come down to Rome. They'd spend time in Rome together, but hot, but Elizabeth Barrett Browning was also incredibly upset that she would walk in and see the female nude. So both for the male and female viewers, um, uh, it was very uh, upsetting and disruptive to have Harriet Hosmer take possession and be able to sort of create that female body to kind of deal with that female body, even though she does it in an extremely modest way, in fact. But again, it was it's just the gendered nature of artistic practice and artistic production at the time that uh, created enormous tension. And as I said, that's the only female nude that Hosmer does. She decides she's not going to return. It's a beautiful sculpture, and it ends up she gives it as a gift to um, a patron of hers, and uh, and she's very close with this male figure who's like a father figure to her, and the father, and um, he has a daughter who she's very close with, and so this ends up being in a private collection and just in their in their home. And I also speculate that Hosmer, um, uh, you know, I thought a lot a lot about sort of Hosmer and these women's sexuality at the time because it's a very homosocial world. There's only one of these women who marries, she's the youngest, and she spends probably the least amount of time in Rome, and she lives in Washington, D.C. But the rest of the That's women... That's Vinnie Reem, right? Uh, Vinnie Reem, mm-hmm. yes. But the rest of the women in Rome uh, really are uh, live uh, in a, hom- a homosocial world in a sort of what we would now call sort of a group house, you know, where women live together. Uh, They developed lifelong relationships with other women. And um, I hesitate to use the term lesbian. I mean, it's just not a term that was in use then. Um, And 
you know, I struggle and, you know, as we all do, I think, and, you know, did a lot of reading about this, try to find the words for these same-sex relationships that women had that were not medicalized yet. You know, they weren't considered, except for the manly female, except for women who were, who would be, who would threaten men because they were, they would take on male characteristics like Charlotte Cushman. I mean, the, 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 the relationships that these women had were very deep, very caring, and Hosmer does end up at the end of her career, or like at mid-career and towards the end of her life, in a lifelong relationship with a woman who lives in London, and she ends up spending most of her time really in England, and they travel a little bit back and forth. Um, but she also seemed to have a very, very close relationship with uh, Cornelia Carr, who was this very close friend that she had in boarding school. And, you know, so she grew up in a very close women's relationship. And so when Cornelia marries, um, uh, I think there's a sense of loss that Hosmer may feel and the Inoni maybe suggests some of that sense of loss and the sensuality of the sculpture is a very feminine sensuality. It's very different from a kind of um, objectified mm-hmm. sensuality, you know, that's made for a male gaze. So I just, I try to um, imagine or think about that nude from a different perspective, from a different kind of sexual positioning, perhaps. But it's it's very speculative, but that's all we have, really. I mean, um, but... but well, she- let me ask you this, uh, Melissa DeBacchus. When you say Elizabeth Barrett Browning was almost offended uh, by the, the female nude, Inoni, produced by Harriet Hosmer, it's not because Barrett Browning or no one else who had visited Hosmer's studio had never seen a female nude. It's because this nude was made by a female artist. Am I correct? I think so. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth Barrett Browning did not like female nudes, period. Okay. She felt offended by female nudes, period. Okay. But I think it was very striking, yes, that Harriet Hosmer was producing the female nude. Right. It almost seemed indecent. You know, uh, antebellum women, Victorian women, I mean, the, the, the truth of the situation is very different, but the ideology is that they're sexless, right? That they have, you know, no, no sensuality whatsoever. And, and Hosmer was somehow, you know, uh, um, explo- exploiting or taking advantage or making quite evident, you know, her ability to create this kind of sensual mood. And I think that when it ran across the grain of what a proper you know, a uh, middle-class woman, you know, uh, what her what her demeanor should be like. Mm-hmm. Talk about studio culture, if you will. What was it like for these American sculptors uh, to have studios in Rome, and how did these women negotiate the boundaries and the double standards of this studio culture? With a lot of difficulty. It was not easy. It absolutely was not easy. And each woman really had a very kind of unique way that they tried to negotiate the very masculinized art world um, that was there, even in Rome, where women were allowed more freedoms than elsewhere, still um, particularly their uh, American brethren, you know, were uh, very suspicious of their activities and um, uh, were very jealous of their successes, too. So uh, it was a minefield, really, for women. And as I said, most women were able to kind of tread this line um, Carefully, and one of the ways they did that was really by living. Uh, their worlds were very much women-centered worlds, and they kind of formed these communities where, in some ways, they took care of each other and they watched out for each other and they you know, supported each other. 
and created new forms of kind of domesticity uh, so that they remained on the one hand traditional females, but on the other hand were able to be professional artists at the same time. So this kind of bringing together of the domestic and the professional, um, you know, was an interesting balance that many of them, um, uh, many of them did successfully. And Harriet Hosmer was one of the people who was able to do that successfully. But uh, Louisa Lander was the one sculptor who came to Rome and uh, who failed. Um, failed only because she was not able to sort of negotiate this very daring situation and was actually pretty much shunned by the Roman community and had to, had to leave Rome. You know, she had to give up her career. And it's a long sort of complicated story, but she, um, one, and one of the things that I argue in the book is that she comes to Rome from an elite Salem family, you know, outside of Boston. Um, and she is very independent, very autonomous, and she kind of lives a very independent life. She is not really, she knows all these, the women who are there, but she doesn't live, for example, with Harriet Hosmer and and within a women's community. She lives by herself. She sets up, you know, her, her studio and she becomes, um, very close friends with Nathaniel Hawthorne. And there are lots of different interpretations of what happened here. Uh, I have one that, as I say, I'm trying to imagine this situation from Louisa's standpoint and not from Nathaniel Hawthorne's standpoint, even though I feel like I do understand Nathaniel Nathaniel Hawthorne's viewpoint because he writes so much uh, about his um his interaction with Louisa Lander. Um, but she does, uh, she does his bust. Uh, she does a bust of Nathaniel Hawthorne, who he and Sophia, his wife, were very happy about. Uh, she spends a lot of time with the Hawthorns in their home and with their children. They go out, they look at all the sites of Rome together. They're a very, very close-knit group. Uh, and then something happens. Uh, Louisa goes home uh, to Boston for a summer and she comes back and she's been accused of living, you know, uh, with a man and, you know, uh, having these uh, literally, you know, these sexual relations with a man and her reputation is completely tarnished. But the man is not Nathaniel Hawthorne. But that, well, Ah. some Hawthorne scholars argue that they had an affair. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know that. I mean, I don't see really any indication of that. Uh, and Hawthorne might have had a crush on that. I see. I mean, I see that Hawthorne might very well have had a crush on Louisa Lander. They spent an enormous amount of time together and they were often alone. Um, Sophia didn't join them, or Sophia and the girls didn't join them, but sometimes they did. And Hawthorne spent a lot of time alone with Louisa Lander in her studio. And when she was, you know, creating his bust. Mm. And that, Hawthorne admits, was a very, very intimate experience for him. You know, to have this woman peruse him, you know, study him, create this, you know, this bust, uh, create his character visually, right, was a very powerful experience for him, which I imagine it is for a lot of people, you know, when they're having their their portraits done. And he, he wrote about that, you know, uh, quite a bit. But in that same studio, in that same studio right next to Hawthorne, are a number of life-size female nudes. Louisa Lander does the female nude. And she, as I said, was extremely independent um, and really, I think, very transgressive. You know, she kind of pushed the boundaries of what, 
women sculptors could do in Rome, sort of beyond the point of no return, maybe. What about these other allegations made towards some of our your w- women artists about not doing their own work? What does that mean for sculptors? How did it affect women sculptors in particular? And how did, for example, Harriet Hosmer handle this when it happened to her? Right. Yeah, Harriet Hosmer was accused uh, of not... She created this very beautiful, very large, very powerful, seven-foot-tall sculpture called Zenobia, Zenobia in Chains, which uh, is now in Pasadena at the uh, Huntington um, Library and Museum and Gardens. And... um, when she showed that sculpture in London, it was very, very well received. It was also very well, well received in Rome. But a rumor started circulating, and well, it, it went in print when it, she showed it in London. But it started; the rumor started circulating even earlier in Rome that she had not produced that sculpture. That in fact, you know, a workman, a Roman um, Italian workman working in her studio, you know, had made the sculpture, but she didn't do it, you know, because, again, the assumption was a woman couldn't make a sculpture like this, you know. I mean, didn't she didn't have the, the skill, the talent, you know, the ability uh, to do that. And Hosmer fought back. Um, she just refused to be silent about this issue. And um, she had, you know, colleagues of hers, you know, write in her defense. She wrote, you know, a big long article in her defense and talked about the way sculptures are made and that male sculptors also used Italian carvers, that it wasn't just women. Um, And eventually... You know, she hired a lawyer, you know, and eventually she was sort of exonerated, you know, and she even pointed out the the American sculptor who accused her of this. Mm-hmm. Um, so women were constantly being threatened by all, all different um, types of accusations, and they had to they had to fight them off. And uh, Louisa Lander was not able to do so. She remained silent. She refused to address these issues. There was a tribunal that was formed in Rome and run by men, and they wanted to get to the bottom of this and what really happened with, with Louisa and if she would only come forward and tell the truth. And she kept her silence. She just refused to negotiate with this. And her reputation uh, was so tarnished that she couldn't really regain, she couldn't, she couldn't regain her reputation. Mm-hmm. Like Hosmer did. But like we're, Hosmer, yeah. we're getting uh, low on time here, Melissa DeBacchus. I'm so enjoying talking about this book, A Sisterhood of Sculptors. But before we end, can I ask you a question? Tell us about the important commissions that so many of these women artists who had passed through Rome were, were, were winning back in Washington or back in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, these women were very, um, very talented. Hosmer got a commission, you know, got a public commission um, for a statue in St. Louis. Uh, and then Vinnie Ream, who's the youngest of the group and a very controversial figure uh, at 19 years old received a commission for the first full length public sculpture of Abraham Lincoln after his assassination. And she was commissioned by the U S government. They wanted this sculpture for the Capitol building. They wanted it in the rotunda of the Capitol building, which it, where it still stands today. And this 19 year old woman, you know, girl, uh, got the commission. 
And that was an enormous scandal. No one could imagine that she could possibly be able to do this sculpture. It was, I have to say, it was daring. I mean, she had never really produced a full, a a large-scale sculpture before. She was chosen, one of the reasons she was chosen was because she actually had access to President Lincoln before he died. And that was very unusual. He did not sit for, I mean, even though there are so many portraits of President Lincoln, he did not sit for most of them. But he was quite taken with this young woman and her talent. And they were both from the Midwest. Uh, she came to Washington from, I, can't remember, I, can't, I think she was from, um, Wisconsin. And of course, he's from Illinois. And so, you know, he was just quite taken with her. And he allowed her to set up his her her clay, her clay, she would made made a clay model of of his uh, a bust for him in his studio while he was working. So that was quite a coup for her. And um, because she had that kind of access to Lincoln, uh, some of the senators and representatives wanted her to do the sculpture because they felt like she really knew the president before he had been killed. And others were just could not imagine that a young woman could be able to do this. And I mean, it, one, one could sort of understand the you know criticism. However, the criticism of her was not really about her talent. The criticism of her was that she was a floozy, essentially, and that, you know, the re- that she had this influence uh, on these male uh, senators because she was so beautiful, which she was, and that she flirted with them all, which she probably did, and that she was able to bewitch them, which was a term that was used in the 19th century, sort of cast a spell over them. And that's why they gave her the commission. And so from the beginning to the end, again, her sexuality was front and center, and not really the fact that she created this pretty amazing sculpture, which still stands you know, in the in the rotunda of Capitol building. And um, uh, again, uh, it's yet another another one of the ways that women on the one hand were quite successful in their careers, but had many, many obstacles that they have had to overcome um, to get where they eventually got to. And in many ways, your book's overall arguments illustrate that point, whereas um, Boston didn't provide too many opportunities for women sculptors. Off they went to Rome, where they were still subject to double standards and negotiating a, a minefield, as you say, of, of gendered politics in the art studio. And I believe you also argue that this was really an exceptional moment in in art history and and women's history, that so many of these women, nearly a dozen, emerged and had major professional careers. And in your postscript, you seem to indicate that it was exceptional and that the era that followed um, almost was a form of regression. Am I reading you correctly? Can you just elaborate on on the shifts that happened after 1876, let's say? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, from as I said, from 1848 with the first Women's Rights Convention, Seneca Falls, and other reform movements coming to the fore, we do have a very progressive moment in American history. And it's actually a very exciting and progressive moment in Italian history, you know, with the, the revolutions that are going on in Italy. So, you know, uh, it is an exceptional moment. I think these women come to maturity, you know, at this, at a moment and in a place and time when um, they were able, with difficulty, but to kind of live out their dreams and their visions and move into the public sphere. And uh, Vinnie Reem is, uh, you know, with the closing, well, and then, And then I argue in the book that this moment comes to a close in Rome 
and it comes to a close at home, real here in the United States too, 1876, 1877, which is the end of the end of Reconstruction, which is the period um, right after the Civil War, where there was an attempt, probably not successful, um, as we know today, because we're still living it out, but an attempt to uh, to incorporate. Uh, African American uh, people, right, into the civic life of America, right, to kind of to create a world that was a multiracial world, and uh, that was from the start a deeply problematic endeavor. And women, unfortunately, lost. I mean, with the thirteenth, fourteenth, fifteenth amendments. Um, we have black male suffrage, right? We have uh, citizenship for black males as we had citizenship for white males, right? Um, beginning, you know, with, with universal um, manhood suffrage with under Andrew Jackson, Jackson, for instance, the 1830s, and then uh, black men were granted citizenship. But of course, we know that that really was only on paper, but women were completely left out of the equation. And that was devastating to white abolitionist women. Anne Whitney, for example, who was a sculptor in Rome and was very, very, very strong feminist and abolitionist, could not believe that women, women really felt that this was their time, you know, that with the end of the Civil War, you know, they would have African-American, we'd have sort of black suffrage, black citizenship, and, and women's women's citizenship. And the women got dropped out of the equation. And so it was a very devastating moment for the, for the history of kind of women's rights. I mean, you know, uh, feminist movement fractured in a number of different ways. And the by 1876, with the kind of legal end of Reconstruction, when the troops are actually withdrawn from the South and certain compromises are made between the North and the South, uh, the country really enters a period of retrenchment. And we see that in terms of racial relations, of course, and we also see it in terms of gender, gender relations. So this kind of exceptional moment for women artists does come to an end, and I argue it's not really until the turn of the 20th century with the, what we call the progressive era, where we have another moment of reform, uh, political, social uh, reform, that women again begin to enter the public sphere and women are sculptors and, you know, uh, and painters and become much more activist uh, at that time. So, yeah, so that book sort of end, it sort of, you know, ends in 76, 77 and, um you know, I think the moment it just becomes harder and harder for women to uh, have this progressive vision because the country, and in Italy too, we see a, a similar type of regression going on in Italy. There just isn't the same um, same kind of sympathies in existence. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Melissa DeBacchus, for talking to us about your book, A Sisterhood of Sculptures. Would you please, before we say goodbye, would you please tell us, are you working on something new? Well, I um, I can't seem to leave Italy because I love Italy so much. And uh, as much as I said that I would only do feminist art history after mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the labor book, uh, now I, I'm actually working on Italy uh, with a broader swath of artists. So I am actually looking at male artists and um, as well as women artists and their relationship uh, to Italy and actually over a a wider period of time too, beginning in the late 18th century and then up in like the long 19th century. So beginning Mm -hmm. the late 18th century up until the early 20th century. Okay. And a particular art form or it looks, sounds like it might be more of a synthesis. Uh, A synthesis, painting, sculpture, and printmaking. Yeah. Well, wonderful. Thank you again, Melissa. We've been talking to Melissa DeBacchus about her book, a Sisterhood of Sculptors, American Artists in 19th Century Rome. Thank you so much, Melissa. You're very welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.